Edward Jones, who knows that just like life, financial planning isn't only about long-term goals. It's about the moments big and small along the way. And when it comes to achieving everyday financial goals, Edward Jones works hard to connect you with someone you can trust professionally and personally. That's why they created their free financial advisor matching tool to help you find a financial advisor in your community. When you take the quiz and get your matches, don't expect just a list of resumes. You'll also see each financial advisor's story and personal interests. And when it's time to meet for the first time, they'll focus on your story, asking questions to understand where you're headed and why. Because Edward Jones knows that at the end of the day, behind every financial goal is a life goal. And that's what really matters. To learn more and find your financial advisor partner, take the quiz at match.edwardjones.com. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. Fizzling out. Stocks on track for a fourth straight day of losses as the 2023 stock rally appears to be running out of steam. Not so, though, for Bitcoin. Down this morning, but still up huge for the week, hitting its highest level since April of 2022. But that's not stopping Jamie Dimon from calling out the sector and its players, primary ones. Now, if stocks are having a rough week, oil is even worse at this point. Now trading at levels that we haven't seen since June. We'll see if there's any more downside ahead and what's driving that move lower in crude. Plus, AMD CEO Lisa Su says her company's new AI chipset is just the first release in what's become a very logjam pipeline of products. And then later on, the Nordic Tesla labor revolt spreads to shareholders. It's Thursday, December 7th, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning and welcome to the show. I'm Dominic Chu in for Frank Holland on this Thursday morning. We'll kick off the half hour here with a Check on U.S. equity futures with the major averages riding a three-day losing streak at this point. But currently, the S&P is implied just about flat on the session at the opening bell. The Dow Jones down by about 60 points and the Nasdaq up by just about 36. The Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq, by the way, are on track to snap a five-week winning streak at this point. Checking in on the bond market, yields are hitting lows not seen since September. Currently, the benchmark 10-year note yield is ticking ever so slightly higher But it's still at 4.15 percent, a far cry from the 5.02 percent we saw just in the last couple of months at these cycle highs. The benchmark two-year note yield just a hair below 4.61 percent and the 30-year long bond 4.25 percent. Now, within energy prices, oil is coming off its lowest settle since June, down more than 6 percent or so this week. But currently, you're seeing a little bit of a bid. WTI crude prices right around 70 bucks in that big figure, up 65 cents or about one full percent. We're watching that $70 mark very carefully. Ice Brent crude futures, the world benchmark gauge, $75.10, up about 80 cents, roughly 1% gains there as well. So we'll keep an eye on those crude prices. And then Bitcoin, by the way, pulling back a bit this morning after topping $44,000 at one point yesterday. That was, by the way, its highest level since April of 2022. But enthusiasm for the asset not doing anything to sway J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon speaking on Capitol Hill just yesterday. 
I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, etc. You pointed out the only true use case for it is criminals, drug traffickers, anti-money laundering, tax avoidance. If I was the government, I'd close it down. All right. Bitcoin price is currently 43,356. As you can see, they're down about one and one third percent. Let's get a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Silvana Hanau is here with those. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, Dom. Good Thursday morning to you. Well, fresh off its highly anticipated unveil yesterday, AMD is now counting meta platforms, OpenAI and Microsoft, as some of its first customers for the new Instinct MI300X chipset meant to rival those from NVIDIA, which have so far dominated the AI marketplace. AMD CEO Lisa Su on CNBC yesterday says this chip is just one step in a whole new race. This market is moving faster than anything that we've seen before. And we've accelerated our roadmap, too, because, you know, we're spending a lot of time with our um, largest customers. And they're saying, hey, MI300 is great. We love it. Now, um, we're also talking about the next generation and the next next generation. So, um, you know, definitely there's a lot of stuff uh, that we have in the pipeline. And in deal news, AbbVie says it will acquire neuroscience drug maker Cerevel Therapeutics for roughly $8.7 billion. Under the terms of the deal, AbbVie will pay $45 per share for Cerevel and expects to complete the deal by the middle of next year. The buyout is AbbVie's latest attempt to expand its drug pipeline as some of its uh, top selling products like Humira begin to face generic competition. And Elon Musk, SpaceX, is reportedly initiating discussions about selling insider shares at a price that would value the space company at $175 billion or more. According to Bloomberg, the tender offer could range between $500 million to $750 million at $95 a share. Terms and size of the offer could change depending on interest. Now, the jump from a $150 billion valuation hit over the summer to $175 billion could make SpaceX one of the world's 75 largest companies by market cap on par with names like T-Mobile, Nike, Disney, Pfizer, and CNBC parent Comcast. Dom. All right, Silvana Hinao, thank you very much for those headlines. We'll see you later on this hour. Well, markets are coming off their third negative session in a row. Investors are remaining cautious after the November rally and whether the market has entered into so-called overbought territory. Bullish sentiment currently sitting in the excessive zone, according to Ned Davis Research. The firm says hype over a Santa Claus rally could lead to weakness in the first half of December, despite it being a seasonally strong time for stocks. Joining me now is Gunjan Banerjee, the lead writer at The Wall Street Journal. She's also a CNBC contributor. She's also out with a new piece titled Traders Brace for Fireworks in the Smallest Stocks. This is interesting because we just had Greg Tordo from Goldman Sachs Asset Management, a small cap manager, on yesterday talking about some of the opportunities. But we'll take a look at one other facet of this story, which is the run that small caps have seen and what's been driving it. So what has been behind some of the upside volatility? That's right, Dom. Thank you. And we've seen this tremendous everything rally, right? It's extended to the small caps. It's extended to gold. Treasury yields yesterday hitting the lowest level since August. Even Bitcoin has been on a run-up. And when you look under the hood, the options market, particularly in sectors like IWM, the Russell 2000, you're seeing people position for those gains to continue. People are paying up for options that could profit if those groups 
kept up this unbelievable rally. And it's really a sign of, of bullishness. Just there. just how strong is the options activity on a relative basis compared to what it historically has been or what the average trading volumes have been? How many people are buying so-called call options or bullish bets on that small cap ETF? It's been tremendous. We saw activity hit an all time high on Friday and yesterday, for example, Calls activity in TLT, one of the biggest treasury ETFs, also hit one of the highest levels on record. So there's really been a burst of activity in these sectors. And, you know, the the IWM trade has really been at the center of the soft landing trade that's dominated markets in the past few weeks. Of course, that is being tested this week. Well, if you take a look at the reason why there is this buy everything mentality, is there a reason why they're focusing specifically on places like the Treasury market and, and long term treasuries? Right. Because that's what the TLT tracks. And then small cap stocks, they seem like very opposite ends of this kind of market risk spectrum. That's such a good point. They do seem like opposite ends, but they both come down to this wager that the Fed is going to lower interest rates next year. It's all about real yields declining, and people are expecting that to help treasuries. People are expecting that to help the smallest companies in the market, which, as you know, they tend to be the most leveraged. They're the most sensitive to interest rates and and borrowing costs. And they've really gotten crushed over the past year. So I I think now people are saying, Hey, if yields fall, as they have, if the Fed cuts next year, that could give that sector a boost. And and people have been trying to catch up there. You know, that sector has underperformed this year, um, of course, underperforming the Magnificent Seven. And I think people are betting that maybe it can um, it can be this big rotation moving forward. This kind of activity is great when it's working, but when it doesn't work, it can go wrong really quickly. That volatility aspect has been absent from the large cap market. The CBOE volatility index is languishing somewhere around 13 at this point or maybe even below that. What's the outlook for volatility given the fast run up that we've seen in options activity tied to some of these parts of the market? It's so fascinating because when you look at the S&P 500 index, people are not really expecting a lot of volatility there. The VIX has been edging lower towards some of its lowest level levels this year. No one wants to hedge the S&P 500 right now. I think they're expecting things to stay calm and for the NVIDIAs and the metas of the world to kind of carry us through the rest of the year. And that is so not the case in the Russell, which has been at the center of volatility. And I think people are expecting more fireworks there. There's really been some unbelievable divergences in how the Russell is trading compared with the broader market. Um, It was up 3% on Friday, um, was holding on to some of its gains yesterday in trading before turning lower. So I think that's been at the center of market action. I think that's the biggest thing to watch, especially with jobs tomorrow, as to how people are positioning in the soft landing trade. That's where people are placing their bets. It's all about the Fed, apparently. All right, Gunjan Banerjee at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much. Thanks, Tom. All right. Well, coming up on the show, we've got a lot more on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, the commercial real estate debate rolls on after a market-moving call from Muddy Waters Chief Carson Block taking a fresh bearish take on the sector. We'll speak with one CEO who's on the other side of that Carson Block short on certain parts of commercial real estate. Plus, much more on oil sharp move lower and why energy majors have been largely unscathed in the sell-off. And later on, new Wall Street donor darling Nikki Haley is facing heat in last night's Republican presidential debate. We'll break down the details. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns after this commercial break. 
Brought to you by Eden Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eden Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right at EdenVance.com slash CNBC. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment's objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at EatonVance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. One of Wall Street's most notable short sellers is setting his sights on commercial real estate, focusing in on Blackstone's mortgage trust. Muddy Waters' Carson Block revealing he's betting against that real estate investment trust, signaling he expects commercial real estate's troubles to drag on into the next year, sending that stock, as you can see, sharply lower yesterday. Lower again, as you can see in the pre-market this morning. Speaking to CNBC yesterday, Block laid out what he sees as a difficult road ahead for commercial real estate. It's pretty well known that office is facing a lot of headwinds. I mean, this is really the perfect storm for office landlords, but for commercial real estate in general, because as interest rates have gone up, the values of the of real estate have gone down. For more on where the commercial real estate sector stands, let's bring in Hassam Naji, the CEO of Marcus and Millichap, which provides real estate and mortgage brokerage services for commercial properties. You could say that he's an expert on commercial real estate. Do you agree with Carson Block? It was a pretty negative message that he put out on our air just yesterday. Good morning. Great to be with you. I think the uh, book is being judged almost entirely by the office sector. The uh, perceptions and the reality of office being hit very hard, like shopping centers where 10, 15 years ago because of e-commerce, is really rippling throughout the entire industry. So you have uh, apartments, self-storage, hospitality, mobile home parks, medical office that are performing very differently. And you have retail, including the bread and butter, brick and mortar neighborhood and community centers that are making a huge comeback because of the fact that they've had 10 years to basically reposition, remove a lot of stock, and, and reinvent themselves. And therefore, commercial real estate as a, as a, a whole is performing much better than expected. Delinquencies are less than half of what they were in the Great Recession. Uh, occupancies across the board, except for office, are holding up incredibly well. And even within office, newer product has vacancy rates that are around 11%. 10 years or older product, especially in urban markets, has a 25% vacancy rate. So the variations of commercial real estate is where the money's made, and the generalizations is where money's lost. Okay, so let's take generalizations off the table yeah. and go specific. 
What's leading and what's lagging in that portfolio of commercial real estate that you just laid out? The number one asset class right now uh, remains industrial warehousing because there's been so much consumer strength and e-commerce demand creating the need for warehouse distribution space that is modern and has just-in-time inventory capabilities and proximity. The last mile issue with uh, e-commerce is still a huge problem, but industrial continues to do very well. Multifamily apartment rentals are doing very well because houses have become so much more difficult to afford for consumers. They're staying uh, as renters longer. The renewal rates on apartment leases uh, are at a, a multi, multi-year high, and those rents are growing in the high single-digit year-over-year levels because people are staying put, and they like where they're already living. So occupancies on apartments is, uh, is doing very well. And retail is the comeback kit. It was the dark horse. Everybody wrote it off, and there was 10 years of pain in retail. I've just come from a tour throughout California, Texas, Florida, and here in New York in the last three or four days for a retail shopping center convention. All the major owners are here. Our other major uh, uh, tenants are here for um, ICSE is the uh, trade group for, for retail. The optimism for retail and pricing power that owners have today on retail is um, unique in 20 years. Nobody's talking about these things um, unless you're in the industry. So let's talk about that supply-demand dynamic in the shift, because ultimately where it plays out is in price and valuation. Right. Interest rates have upset a lot of the models over the course of the last two to three years. What exactly does the valuation picture look like right now? Are there values to be had? Can deals get done in commercial real estate? Great point. Sales transactions are down 50, 60 percent this year for the very reason you mentioned. Interest rates have shocked the valuation Part of the equation, lenders have pulled back from lending because of all this uh, concern, and legitimately so over the last year, uh, but prices are adjusting. It takes time for sellers to come to terms when they have to sell a property that your current price is not what it was a year, year and a half ago. Interest rate uh, uh, increases re- directly translate to price reductions, and that's happening gradually. We're seeing somewhere around the 15 to 20 percent price reduction from peak across the board. And that is creating transaction velocity. Now, the sideline capital waiting to come back in is at a record level. Gotcha. Hassan Naji, Marcus Milichev, thank you very much for the insider look. Thanks for having me on. Commercial real estate. Great to see you. All right. Well, still ahead on Worldwide Exchange, the artificial intelligence stock not living up to the hype this morning. It's your big money movers and morning mystery chart. We'll reveal that coming up next after this break. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production, and they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. Welcome back. Time now for your big money movers. Shares of Chewy are plunging. The pet supply retailer issuing disappointing revenue guidance and reducing its full year outlook, pointing to ongoing macroeconomic pressures. Chewy adding it had encouraging performance during Black Friday and Cyber Monday, but has seen since seen trends return to 
Weaker pre-holiday levels, those shares down 11.5% pre-market. Shares of GameStop also under pressure. The company missing third-quarter revenue expectations despite posting better-than-expected results on the bottom line. GameStop says net sales in the U.S. decreased by more than 13% during the quarter. Those sales in Europe grew by over 12% due to decreased supply constraints. GameStop down 7.5%. And your morning mystery chart, shares of C3AI sinking on mixed quarterly results. CEO Thomas Siebel says while he still expects to be cash positive in 2023 and 2024, he does not anticipate being non-GAAP profitable, adjusted profitable, due to heavy investments in generative AI, those shares down 10%. It was a fiery showdown between four Republican presidential candidates in Alabama last night. NBC's Bree Jackson is in Washington, D.C. with the details. Bree, these presidential hopefuls were all looking to make their latest pitch to voters on the national stage. What were the key takeaways? Good morning, Dom. Yeah, so things certainly got heated on the debate stage last night. We saw clashes and personal attacks as four Republican candidates fought for their political lives. Nikki is corrupt. A fierce fight between four competitors in the fourth GOP presidential debate. Do everybody a favor. Just walk yourself off that stage. Enjoy a nice meal and get the hell out of this place. Entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley sparred over issues ranging from immigration to conflicts overseas. Haley has surged in the polls and drew attacks from her political rivals. The fact of the matter is we know from her history, Nikki will cave to those big donors when it counts. In terms of these donors that are supporting me, they're just jealous. They wish that they were supporting them, but I'm not going to sit there and The Republican frontrunner, former President Trump, once again skipped the debate. His presence was still felt on this stage. Christie accusing DeSantis of dodging questions about whether Trump is fit for office. The question was very direct. Is he fit to be president or isn't he? The rest of the speech is interesting, but completely non-responsive. And if we were in a courtroom, they'd strike the answer and say, Governor DeSantis, no, they you're wouldn't. a smart, would say you're that a smart they would man. That the, no, they would. No, they wouldn't, They would Chris. strike the answer no, they because you're not answering you it. Just don't f- this marks what's expected to be the last debate before the Iowa caucus next month, where voters will have their first crack at setting the tone for the 2024 presidential election. First in the nation caucuses are set for January 15th. Dom. All right, Bree Jackson with the latest on the Republican presidential debate. Thank you very much. Let's get a check on some of this morning's other top headlines. NBC's Philip Mena is in New York with the latest. Good morning. Hi, Dom. Good morning. At least three people were killed when a suspect opened fire at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Students were forced to shelter in place for hours as police evacuated buildings one by one. Law enforcement sources tell NBC News the suspect was a man in his 60s. He was struck and died during a shootout with police. No details have been released about any possible motive. The U.S. Navy says it is grounding all Osprey aircraft after a crash off the coast of Japan killed eight airmen last week. In a statement, the military says the move is, quote, out of an abundance of caution. An investigation so far points to a material failure, but the underlying cause is unknown. The Osprey has long been plagued by safety concerns. Twenty U.S. service members have been killed in four crashes in less than two years. 
The Big Apple is getting ready to light its big menorah. The world's largest menorah is up in front of the Plaza Hotel ahead of the lighting ceremony tonight. It is considered a symbol of light, Jewish confidence, and pride. It will light that menorah each night throughout the holiday, ending on December 15th. That's it from here, Dom. And back to you. All right. Thank you very much, Philip Mena, for that. Straight ahead on the show, the hard rock hits the jackpot in the Sunshine State. Our Contessa Brewer has stayed up all night for us with a live look. Contessa is at the Guitar Hotel. <laughs> You're confusing me with some of my younger colleagues or maybe my younger self. But there is a lot of reason to stay up all night partying. Today, Hard Rock rolls out the red carpet for A-list celebrities, relaunching legal sports betting and new casino games. And I've got the whole story right here from South Florida coming up on Worldwide Exchange. It is 529 a.m. in New York, and there's still a lot here on Worldwide Exchange. So here's what's still on deck. Stocks extending their slide, making it three in a row as investors turn their attention to the latest look at the labor market. Futures are searching for some direction right now. The energy sector fueling some of the market's pullback as recent OPEC production cuts do little to stem crude's price pressures, the key catalyst that could change oil's momentum. And a high-profile exit for Apple as the executive behind key technology in some of its top-selling devices looks to bid Cupertino adieu. It is Thursday, December 7th. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Dominic Chewin for Frank Holland on this Thursday morning. We'll pick up the half hour here with a check on U.S. equity futures. The Dow and the S&P are riding three-day losing streaks, and it could continue today, but for right now at least. The Dow Jones is implied lower by roughly 71 points. The S&P just about flat on the session with very modest gains in the Nasdaq implied higher by just about 33 points at the opening bell. Now, for the week, the Dow, the S&P 500, and Nasdaq are on track to snap a five-week winning streak. As you can see here, the Dow Industrials, S&P, and Nasdaq composite week-to-date just kind of in the red here. The Nasdaq composite pacing those week-to-date declines. Turning now to the bond market, the 10-year Treasury note yield hovering at its lowest level, just near the lowest level since September. Right now, those 10-year note yields ticking ever so slightly higher to 4.15%, the two-year note yield 4.61%, and the 30-year long bond 4.25% right now. Within Europe, markets are in the red following weak manufacturing data out of Germany, the biggest economy out there. Travel stocks are slipping as J.P. Morgan downgrades European airlines. And then Bitcoin is also pulling back a bit this morning after topping the 44,000 mark yesterday. That's, by the way, its highest level since April of 2022. But enthusiasm for the assets not doing anything to sway J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon, who spoke on Capitol Hill yesterday in front of the Senate Finance Committee. I've always been deeply opposed to crypto, Bitcoin, etc. You pointed out the only true use case for it is criminals, drug traffickers, anti-money laundering, tax avoidance. If I was the government, I'd close it down. Harsh words on Bitcoin from Jamie Dimon. Let's get a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. For that, we turn back to Silvana Hanal. Good morning, Silvana. 
Hey, Dom, good morning to you. Well, Dom, Apple reportedly facing a high-profile executive exit. Bloomberg reports Steve Hodling is retiring. Hodling is the senior executive overseeing the company's touchscreen technology, health sensors, and face ID interface. His work included helping to integrate those features into the iPhone, iPad, and Apple Watch, as well as the upcoming Vision Pro headset. Meanwhile, Meta Platforms announcing it has begun fully encrypting messages on its Facebook and Messenger apps. Messenger previously had the option to turn on end-to-end encryption, allowing a message to be read only by the sender and its recipients. But with this change, messages would be encrypted by default. Meta has said the move could help keep users safe from hacks and fraud, while critics have argued that the enhancement could actually aid criminals. And Chevron announcing it's raising its CapEx budget for next year. The oil giant saying that figure will climb 14 percent to 16 billion dollars. Chevron saying it plans to spend about two thirds of that budget on U.S. focused projects, including developing its shale portfolio, Dom. All right, Silvana, now thank you very much for those headlines. We'll see you later. Let's stick with the energy trade. Oil prices are recovering some ground after falling to a six month low yesterday with U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate or WTI crude prices falling below 70 bucks a barrel for the first time since June. It's back above that mark today. Investors, though, remain concerned about global demand and economic slowdowns in the world's top two oil consumers. They are, of course, the U.S. and China. Customs data out today shows China's crude oil imports fell more than 9% in the month of November. That's the first annual decline since April. There's also a lot of skepticism over the latest round of production cuts from OPEC and its partner countries. WTI and Brent crude are both down about 10% since that decision was announced just a week ago. So let's talk more about the direction of oil prices and the impact they're having on energy stocks. Rebecca Babin is senior energy trader at CIBC Private Wealth. Peter McNally is the global sector lead for industrials, materials and energy at Third Bridge. Thank you both for being here. Let's start macro big picture on the commodity side. Rebecca, why oil prices cannot find a bid and what anybody can do to stem this tide to the downside? So it's a great question, Dom. And if you remember, we did this exact interview almost a year ago <laughs> on this exact topic when crude was kind of in free fall at the end of the year. We've got a couple factors in play that seem to always happen at the end of the year. We're in a seasonally weaker time for crude oil demand. We typically see inventory builds. We are seeing larger than expected inventory builds right now, but that has really sparked the momentum to the downside. We are no longer in a deficit. We're not drawing crude oil like we were in the summer. We're building inventories. We have the second factor, which you just noted, to, noted. China does not have any more export quotas available. So they're not going to buy this kind of excess crude that they have been throughout the year in exporting out products. That's another kind of headwind. And lastly, and I think this is kind of the key point, we have a lot less faith, faith in what OPEC has done and is able to do in the future. As they've cut, it's become harder and harder to get everyone in line. The cuts are no longer quotas. They're voluntary. There has been some lack of compliance. So the market has started to question the OPEC put that has been the support underneath previous sell-offs. And when you question that, it really, really inspires the momentum traders and the CTAs to press their shorts. And guess what? The traditional hedge fund players, They've taken a knee for the year. 
they're winding down the clock. They're not necessarily putting on big bets. So there's not a lot of friction to the downside. Peter, this is interesting. Uh, Rebecca mentions those commodity trading advisors, other hedge fund type, uh, you know, players who are basically saying that, you know, we, we'll take the losses right now. We'll kind of sit on the sidelines here. What exactly has that meant for energy stocks? Falling oil prices are a tailwind for certain sectors, but energy companies have been feeling the pinch, though not so much Exxon and Chevron. Well, you know, for sure, this is going to hurt cash flow. And even on the upside, oil stocks did not keep up with, with the commodity. There's always been a certain amount of skepticism in equity markets, you know, around the oil price when, when they were good. But, you know, point to the story or story just before this about Chevron increasing CapEx. Now, some of that increase is due to an acquisition Again, in the U.S., ExxonMobil has been, you know, increasing their investments in the U.S. And they announced yesterday that like, their Permian production is going to be up 8%. Now, keep in mind that Exxon's overall volumes in the U.S. have been declining for five straight quarters. And you've got these bigger, better capitalized companies who control U.S. oil production. And that's very different than when OPEC Plus put this grouped together with this declaration of cooperation seven years ago. It's just going to be tougher to slow down U.S. production, which has continued to you know, be found a lot of watchers as to why it continues to grow, despite drilling activity being lower. And the story here is about efficiency. So that's, you know, that backdrop is adding to, you know, more pressure on oil at a tough time of year to be a bull. Peter, a lot of focus has been on the Permian Basin out in West Texas, this idea that they're trying to consolidate, you're getting a lot more activity, M&A activity, to, to focus on certain key oil-producing and gas-producing regions in the country. How much consolidation or can consolidation happen enough to where U.S. producers, shale oil producers, can actually bring down their break-even costs to a level that won't be as affected by some of the OPEC-plus policies that are out there? I guess that's the key concern for U.S. producers. Well, it's certainly a lot lower than what we're seeing today, you know, in the mid 70s on Brent and around 70 on on WTI. I mean, the budgets that like Exxon and Chevron are running are on $60 Brent. And frankly, these things work, these plays for most of these companies well, you know, down into the 30s. It's an industry that has continued to get increasingly efficient over time. And those efficiencies accelerate during downturns. Now, activity overall has been down, but production, you know, has continued to grow, not at the same pace that we saw like a decade ago as the Permian became kind of the new the new thing. But it's a lot more durable, I think, than uh, OPEC gives it credit for. Rebecca, we're going to give the last word to you here. The oil price decline has been something that perhaps is obviously not good for any oil producer out there, specifically places like Saudi Arabia and Russia and other large ones. The U.S. is included in that picture. We're the biggest producer out there. How exactly then does policy from OPEC look in the coming months, given the fact that maybe there is a philosophy that maybe lower oil prices could benefit some of these bigger producing regions if it hurts U.S. shale producers? So I I don't think that's going to be in their calculus. I think what you're alluding to is will they go for kind of the market share war as opposed to price stability? And I think we've all learned the hard way that nobody wins there, including the Middle East. The Middle East is now 
highly focused on creating themselves or OPEC is focused on being the Fed of OPEC, of oil markets, not necessarily the instigator of mass volatility. So I don't think that that strategy is what they're going to do. What I think they're going to do is play the long game here. They know that Shale production cannot grow at this rate indefinitely. In fact, this year, U.S. crude production is only set to grow four to 500,000 barrels a day. That's down from the million that we did this year. Could there be continued efficiency gains there? There can, but not to that extent. So I think what they're going to do is they're going to stay with their strategy and they're going to be the last man standing when U.S. shale production does start to really compress and flatline. All right. Rebecca Babin and Peter McNally on the state of the oil trade. Thank you both very much. Happy holidays. Thank you. All right. Well, it's official starting today. Florida is joining other states in offering legal sports betting to all of its residents. The move also marks a big day for the Hard Rock International and the Seminole Indian tribe. The Contessa Brewer story from the Hard Rock Sportsbook (laughs) in Hollywood just gets more intense with these particular moves. Contessa, what can you tell us about just how big of a deal this is for both the Hard Rock and the Seminole Nation? Yeah, the Contessa Brewer story is that it is a big story, Dom. The retail sportsbook here at the iconic Guitar Hotel in South Florida will welcome bettors in today for the first time to make their wagers on sports in a state where they haven't legally been able to do it since 2021. Court challenges, legal wrangling, force the Seminole Tribe, which owns the Hard Rock brand, to cease sportsbook operations in the state. But court rulings have come down in favor of the tribe, and Hard Rock is pushing forward today. The gaming industry considers Florida a super state because of its population, the third biggest in the nation, and it has a dozen powerhouse sports teams. What's more, Hard Rock and the Seminoles have a near monopoly in this state. It's an amazing event for us because, number one, it gives us the full scope of product that, frankly, we haven't had. We haven't had the game of roulette. We haven't had the game of craps. But more importantly, after, you know, 10-plus years in legal challenges, we now offer sports betting not only live in person at all of our facilities in Florida, but throughout the full state of Florida through the mobile app. And it's something we're real excited about. I say near monopoly because there are opportunities for the paramutuals to offer sports betting if they work out a partnership with the Seminoles. In theory, that could benefit, say, Penn Entertainment, which owns a race book near Orlando. When I asked Penn if they're already starting those conversations, I got to, we don't comment on business development opportunities that we may or may not be pursuing. Okay. This is expected to contribute mightily, though, to the nation's overall sports betting market. There are predictions Florida could soon overtake New York as the leader in terms of the amount wagered. In October this year in New York, that was more than $2 billion. And the state's making a lot because the tax rate in New York is 51%. Hard Rock has a big reason to celebrate, rolling out the red carpet for A-list celebrities, Dom, who will help kick off this new era of sports gambling, live dealer roulette, which is my game, and craps as well. All right. So, Contessa, how exactly can investors participate in the upside to this success in gambling, specifically when it comes to the Florida market? Because, because it's tribal gaming, right? And, and what I always say is if you only look at the commercial operators, you're leaving more than 40% of the betting market in the United States on, off the table. Or are you leaving it on the table? At any rate, 
I think one way to look at this is who are the suppliers? Who's going to participate in an upside? Is it the tech suppliers? Is it the uh, games games makers like Aristocrat and IGT and Light and Wonder? We know that there is um, pro- there are investments in the debt of Hard Rock, and and that's one way to go about it. But also to look in the future about whether Hard Rock remains private, whether there's a spinoff in the digital space coming down the road. I think that there's a lot of interesting ways. If you think Florida is the big move that the gaming industry thinks it is, uh, a lot of ways to participate, Dom. All right. Contessa Brewer at the Guitar Hotel in Florida. Thank you very much. We'll see you throughout the course of the day. Coming up on the show here, continued fallout for Tesla over an ongoing labor union dispute in Europe as one pension fund there looks to hit the EV maker where it hurts the most. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet. Analysts at Stiefel are initiating coverage of Rivian, giving it a buy rating and a $23 price target. Stiefel citing margin expansion factors for next year and beyond, including new technology and rising production. Those shares up about two and a quarter percent pre-market. Bank of America is downgrading Take-Two Interactive's rating to neutral. A big focus is the company's Grand Theft Auto 6, with B of A saying, in part, not enough is known about the quality of the game following its trailer launch earlier this week. Those shares down about one and a third percent. And then Goldman Sachs initiating coverage of Avis Budget Group with a sell rating and $164 target price. Goldman saying that while Avis has been executing better than rival Hertz, it sees a more limited catalyst path ahead. Those shares down roughly one and a half percent in extended trading. Time now for your global briefing. Shares of Rakuten Bank falling sharply in Japan, tracking for their largest single-day drop in more than two months. This after its parent company said it will cut its stake in the lender, offering up more than 24 million shares in an overseas secondary offering at a 9.8% discount to yesterday's closing price. One of Denmark's largest pension funds is selling its stake in Tesla in protest over the EV maker's refusal to sign collective bargaining agreements with the country's labor unions or those in neighboring Norway, who've been on strike since October. Labor unions in both countries say they will soon start blocking shipments of Tesla cars meant for Swedish markets. Australia's Woodside Energy and Santos say they are in merger talks to create a $50 billion global oil and gas giant. A combination would be the largest corporate deal in Australian and in years, and comes less than 18 months after Woodside merged with BHP's oil and gas business itself, those shares both up in overseas action. Well, coming ahead on the show, the one word every investor needs to know today, plus growing caution. The trends Andy Jassy tells CNBC he's seeing from Amazon's customers when it comes to spending. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. Meta, OpenAI, and Microsoft planning to use AMD's newest AI chip as companies search for alternatives to NVIDIA's high-cost microprocessors. AMD CEO Lisa Su says the new chip's new architecture translates to faster data processing and better user experience. Speaking of AI, Google launching the latest version of its Gemini AI model. The company says Gemini will be licensed to customers through Google Cloud and will power consumer-facing apps like the Bard chatbot and search generative experience. Shares of Nikola plummeting on news it plans to raise around $100 million through common stock sales and $200 million through convertible notes. 
The stock is down more than 60% this year with a market cap of just around $350 million. In China, exports growing for the first time in six months during November as discount pricing by factories attracts more buyers and helps boost slumping demand. AbbVie says it's acquiring neuroscience drug maker Cerevel, the therapeutics company, for roughly $8.7 billion. Under terms of the deal, AbbVie will pay $45 per share for Cerevel and expects the acquisition to be complete by mid-2024. And Elon Musk's SpaceX reportedly in talks to sell insider shares on a company valuation of $175 billion or more. Bloomberg Report says SpaceX is discussing an offer ranging from $500 million to $750 million and could sell shares of about $95 apiece. Well, let's see how the markets are shaping up after three straight days of losses. Futures right now are mixed. The Dow is implied lower by 75. The S&P pretty much flat. The Nasdaq higher by just around 35 points. Joining me now is Victoria Fernandez, Chief Market Strategist at Crossmark Global Investments. Uh, Victoria, this is a market right now where it seems as though things are trying to broaden out. Do you feel as though there's still enough fuel in the tank for this so-called seasonal rally at the end of the year? I think there could be, Dom, but a lot of it rests on these economic reports that are coming out. Obviously, we have initial jobless claims today. That's actually been driving the market pretty significantly over the last couple of weeks in non-farm payrolls. Tomorrow, people really have their focus on the jobs market and on inflation because they know that's what's driving the next actions of the Fed. So if those numbers continue to come out in support of what the market is anticipating, that the Fed is done and they're going to have rate cuts early next year, then I think the market continues to do well. If we have Uh, numbers that come out that are not as supportive of that, then I think maybe the Santa Claus rally might have come and gone uh, for this year already, and we'll have to brace ourselves for a little bit of a pullback. Victoria, consumer spending, the retail landscape is such a key part of the fourth quarter story for good reason, because the U.S. economy is powered by consumer spending. Uh, Amazon CEO Andy Jassy offered a mixed picture when it comes to the consumer picture when speaking with our own Jim Cramer last uh, last night on Mad Money. Just Take a listen to what he said. Consumers are still spending. Uh, they're, they're being careful about what they spend on, and they're looking for bargains and deals wherever they can and wherever they can trade down on price. They're trying to do so. And what does that say about the consumer and their confidence right now? Yeah, he's right. I mean, obviously, this time of year, people are spending probably when they wouldn't be spending um, in a different time of year. The holidays bring that out in people. But I think what we have to watch is delinquency rates that we're seeing even now in this fourth quarter. Delinquency rates are up on credit cards or up on autos, especially in that 18 to 29 year old group where we also know that student loan debt's coming in. And Dom, this is in, a, in an environment of low unemployment, wages up 5% year over year. So I think it tells us the consumer is concerned. They're watching. I actually think earnings today will be an interesting tell because we've got two different consumer bases. We've got Dollar General and we've got Lululemon. So I think it'll be interesting to hear what those CEOs are saying in regards to their consumer base. And Victoria, before we let you go, the word of the day, maybe not cautious though. No, cavalier is the word that I'm using for today. And I think the market has been acting a little cavalier in regards to what the Fed may do or not do into next year. We don't anticipate rate cuts as early as the market does. You know, the market's looking for the Fed to cut rates, but at the same time have double digit earnings growth, have GDP growth above trend. I think they're being a little cavalier in their outlook. 
All right. Victoria Fernandez across, Mark. Thank you very much. Happy holidays. We'll see you soon. Squawk Box is coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.